Chapter 5 of The Wolf Hunters. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Brian Aidy. The Wolf Hunters by James Oliver Curwood. Chapter 5 Mysterious Shots in the Wilderness. As the Indian youth sped over the trail in the direction of the rifle shots, he flung his usual caution to the winds. His blood thrilled with the knowledge that there was not a moment to lose, that even now, in all probability, he would be too late to assist his friends. This fear was emphasized by the absolute silence which followed the five shots. Eagerly, almost prayerfully, he listened as he ran for other sounds of battle, for the report of Mukoki's revolver, or for the whoops of the victors. If there had been an ambush, it was all over now. Each moment added to his conviction, and as he thrust the muzzle of his gun ahead of him, his finger hovering near the trigger and his snow-blinded eyes staring ahead into the storm, something like a sob escaped his lips. Ahead of him the stream narrowed until it almost buried itself under a mass of towering cedars. The closeness of the forest walls now added to the general gloom, intensified by the first gray pallor of the northern dusk, which begins to fall in these regions early in the afternoon of November days. For a moment, just before plunging into the gloomy trail between the cedars, Wabi stopped and listened. He heard nothing but the beating of his own heart, which worked like a trip-hammer within his breast. The stillness was oppressive, and the longer he listened, the more some invisible power seemed to hold him back. It was not fear, it was not lack of courage, but what was there just beyond those cedars, lurking cautiously in the snow-gloom? With instinct that was almost animal in its unreasonableness, Wabi sank upon his knees. He had seen nothing, he had heard nothing, but he crouched close until he was no larger than a waiting wolf, and there was a deadly earnestness in the manner in which he turned his rifle into the deeper gloom of those close-knit walls of forest. Something was approaching cautiously, stealthily, and with extreme slowness. The Indian boy felt that this was so, and yet, if his life had depended upon it, he could not have told why. He huddled himself lower in the snow. His eyes gleamed with excitement. Minute after minute passed, and still there came no sound. Then, from far up that dusky avenue of cedars, there came the sudden chatter of a moose bird. It was a warning which years of experience had taught Wabi always to respect. Perhaps a roving fox had frightened it. Perhaps the bird had taken to noisy flight at the near tread of a moose, a caribou, or a deer. But, to Wabi, the soft, quick notes of the moose bird spelled man. In an instant he was upon his feet, darting quickly into the sheltering cedars of the shore. Through these he now made his way with extreme caution, keeping close to the bank of the frozen stream. After a little he paused again and concealed himself behind the end of a fallen log. Ahead of him he could look into the snow gloom between the cedars, and whatever was coming through that gloom would have to pass within a dozen yards of him. Each moment added to his excitement. He heard the chatter of a red squirrel much nearer than the moose bird. Once he fancied that he heard the striking of two objects, as though a rifle barrel had accidentally come into contact with the dead limb of a tree. Suddenly the Indian youth imagined that he saw something, an indistinct shadow that came in the snow gloom, then disappeared and came again. He brushed the water and snow from his eyes with one of his mittened hands and stared hard and steadily. Once more the shadow disappeared, then came again, larger and more distinct than before. There was no doubt now. Whatever had startled the moose bird was coming slowly, noiselessly. Wabi brought his rifle to his shoulder. 
Life and death hovered with his anxious naked finger over the gun trigger, but he was too well trained in the ways of the wilderness to fire just yet. Yard by yard the shadow approached and divided itself into two shadows. Wabi could now see that they were men. They were advancing in a cautious, crouching attitude, as though they expected to meet enemies somewhere ahead of them. Wabi's heart thumped with joy. There could be no surer sign that Mukoki and Rod were still among the living, for why should the Woongas employ this caution if they had already successfully ambushed the hunters? With the chill of a cold hand at his throat, the answer flashed into Wabigawan's brain. His friends had been ambushed, and these two Woongas were stealing back over the trail to slay him. Very slowly, very gently, the young Indian's finger pressed against the trigger of his rifle. A dozen more feet, and then... The shadows had stopped, and now drew together as if in consultation. They were not more than twenty yards away, and for a moment Wabi lowered his rifle and listened hard. He could hear the low, unintelligible mutterings of their conversation. Then there came to him a single, incautious reply from one of the shadows. All right. Surely that was not the English of a Woonga. It sounded like... In a flash, Wabi called softly, Ho! Oh, Mookie! Mookie! Rod! In another moment, the three wolf hunters were together, silently wringing one another's hands. The death-like pallor of Rod's face and the tense lines in the bronzed countenances of Mukoki and Wobigawan plainly showing the tremendous strain they had been under. "'You shoot?' whispered Mukoki. "'No,' replied Wabi, his eyes widened in surprise. "'Didn't you shoot?' "'No.' Only the one word fell from the old Indian, but it was filled with a new warning. Who had fired the shots? The hunters gazed blankly at one another, mute questioning in their eyes. Without speaking, Mukoki pointed suggestively to the clearer channel of the river beyond the cedars. Evidently, he thought the shots had come from there. Wabi shook his head. There was no trail, he whispered. Nobody has crossed the river. I thought they were there, breathed Rod. He pointed into the forest, but Mukoki said no. For a long time the three stood and listened. Half a mile back in the forest they heard the howl of a single wolf, and Wabi flashed a curious glance into the eyes of the old Indian. "'That's a man's cry,' he whispered. "'The wolf has struck a human trail. It isn't mine.' "'Not ours,' Rod replied. This one long howl of the wolf was the only sound that broke the stillness of approaching night. Mukoki turned, and the others followed his trail. A quarter of a mile farther on, the stream became still narrower and plunged between great masses of rock which rose into wild and precipitous hills that were almost mountains a little way back. No longer could the hunters follow the channel of the rushing torrent. Through a break in the gigantic wall of rock and huge boulders led the trail of Rod and Mukoki. Ten minutes more and the three had clambered to the top of a ridge where, in the lee of a great rock, the remains of a fire were still burning. Here the old Indian and his companion had struck camp and were waiting for Wabigawan when they heard the shots which they too believed were those of an ambush. A comfortable shelter of balsam had already been erected against the rock, and close beside the fire, where Mukoki had dropped it in the sound of the shots, was a large piece of spitted venison. The situation was ideal for a camp, and after the hard day's tramp through the snow, the young wolf hunters regarded it with expressions of pleasure, in spite of the enemies whom they knew might be lurking near them. Both Wabi and Rod had accepted the place as their night's home, and were stirring up the fire, when their attention was drawn to the singular attitude of Mukoki. The old warrior stood leaning on his rifle, speechless and motionless, his eyes regarding the process of rekindling the fire with mute disapprobation. Wabi, poised on one knee, looked at him questioningly. 
No make more fire, said the old Indian, shaking his head. No dare stay here. Go on, beyond mountain. Mukoki straightened himself and stretched a long arm toward the north. River go like much devil long edge of mountain, he continued. Make heap noise through rock, then make swamp thick for cow moose, then run through mountain and make wide smooth river once more. We go over mountain, snow all night. Morning come, no trail for Woonga. We stay here, make big trail in morning. Woonga follow like devil, very plain to see. Wabi rose to his feet, his face showing the keenness of his disappointment. Since early morning he had been traveling, even running at times, and he was tired enough to risk willingly a few dangers for the sake of sleep and supper. Rod was in even worse condition, though his trail had been much shorter. For a few moments the two boys looked at each other in silence, neither attempting to conceal the lack of favor with which Mukoki's suggestion was received. But Wabi was too wise to openly oppose the old pathfinder. If Mukoki said it was dangerous for them to remain where they were during the night, well, it was dangerous, and it would be foolish for him to dispute it. He knew Mukoki to be one of the greatest hunters of his tribe, a human bloodhound on the trail, and what he said was law. So with a cheerful grin at Rod, who needed all the encouragement that could be given to him, Wabi began the readjustment of the pack which he had flung from his shoulders a few minutes before. Mountain not very far. Two, three miles, then camp, encouraged Mukoki. Walk slow, have big supper. Only a few articles had been taken from the toboggan sled on which the hunters were dragging the greater part of their equipment into the wilderness, and Mukoki soon had these packed again. The three adventurers now took up the new trail along the top of one of those wild and picturesque ridges which both the Indians and white hunters of this great northland call mountains. Wabigawan led, weighted under his pack, selecting the clearest road for the toboggan, and clipping down obstructing saplings with his keen-edged belt axe. A dozen feet behind him followed Mukoki, dragging the sled, and behind the sled, securely tied with a thong of babiche or moose-skin rope, slunk the wolf. Rod, less experienced in making a trail, and burdened with a lighter pack, formed the rear of the little cavalcade. Darkness was now falling rapidly. Though Wabigawan was not more than a dozen yards ahead, Rod could only now and then catch a fleeting vision of him through the gloom. Mukoki, doubled over his harness, was hardly more than a blotch in the early night. Only the wolf was near enough to offer companionship to the tired and down-spirited youth. Rod's enthusiasm was not easily cold, but just now he mentally wished that, for this one night at least, he was back at the post, with the lovely Minnetaki relating to him some legend of bird or beast that they had encountered that day. How much pleasanter would that be? The vision of the bewitching little maiden was suddenly knocked out of his head in a most unexpected and startling way. Mukoki had paused for a moment, and Rod, unconscious of the fact, continued on his journey until he tumbled in a sprawling heap over the sled, knocking Mukoki's legs completely out from under him in his fall. When Wabi ran back, he found Rod flattened out, face downward, and Mukoki entangled in his sight harness on top of him. In a way, this accident was fortunate. Wabi, who possessed a Caucasian sense of humor, shook with merriment as he gave his assistance, and Rod, after he had dug the snow from his eyes and ears, and emptied a handful of it from his neck, joined with him. The ridge now became narrower as the trio advanced. On one side, far down, could be heard the thunderous rush of the river, and from the direction of the sound, Rod knew they were near a precipice. Great beds of boulders and broken rock, thrown there by some tumultuous upheaval of past ages, now impeded their progress, and every step was taken with extreme caution. The noise of the torrent became louder and louder as they advanced, and on one side of him Rod now thought that he could distinguish a dim, massive shadow towering above them, like the precipitous side of a mountain. 
A few steps farther, and Mukoki exchanged places with Wobigawan. Muki has been here before, cried Wabi close up to Rod's ear. His voice was almost drowned by the tumult below. That's where the river rushes through the mountain. Rod forgot his fatigue in the new excitement. Never in his wildest dreams of adventure had he foreseen an hour like this. Each step seemed to bring them nearer the edge of the vast chasm through which the river plunged, and yet not a sign of it could he see. He strained his eyes and ears, each moment expecting to hear the warning voice of the old warrior. With a suddenness that chilled him, he saw the great shadow close in upon them from the opposite side, and for the first time he realized their position. On their left was the precipice, on their right the sheer wall of the mountain. How wide was the ledge along which they were traveling? His foot struck a stick under the snow. Catching it up, he flung it out into space. For a single instant he paused to listen, but there came no sound of the falling object. The precipice was very near. A little chill ran up his spine. It was a sensation that he had never experienced in walking the streets of a city. Though he could not see, he knew that the ledge was leading them up. He could hear Wobigawan straining ahead of the toboggan, and he began to assist by pushing on the rear of the loaded sled. For half an hour this upward climb continued, until the sound of the river had entirely died away. No longer was the mountain on the right. Five minutes later Mukoki called a halt. On top mountain, he said briefly. Camp here. Rod could not repress an exclamation of joy, and Wobigawan, as he threw off his harness, gave a suppressed whoop. Mukoki, who seemed tireless, began an immediate search for a site for their camp, and after a short breathing spell, Rod and Wabi joined him. The spot chosen was in the shelter of a huge rock, and while Mukoki cleaned away the snow, the younger hunters set to work with their axes in a near growth of balsam, cutting armful after armful of the soft, odorous boughs. Inside of an hour, a comfortable camp was completed, with an exhilarating fire throwing its crackling flames high up into the night before it. For the first time since leaving the abandoned camp at the other end of the ridge, the hunters fully realized how famished they were, and Mukoki was at once delegated to prepare supper, while Wabi and Rod searched in the darkness for their night's supply of wood. Fortunately, quite near at hand, they discovered several dead poplars, the best fuel in the world for a campfire, and by the time the venison and coffee were ready, they had collected a huge pile of this, together with several good-sized backlogs. Mukoki had spread the feast in the opening of the shelter where the heat of the fire, reflected from the face of the rock, fell upon them in genial warmth, suffusing their faces with the most comfortable glow. The heat, together with the feast, were almost overpowering in their effects, and hardly was his supper completed when Rod felt creeping over him a drowsiness which he attempted in vain to fight off a little longer. Dragging himself back in the shelter, he wrapped himself in his blanket, burrowed into the mass of balsam boughs, and passed quickly into oblivion. His last intelligible vision was Mukoki, piling logs upon the fire, while the flame shot up a dozen feet into the air, illuminating to his drowsy eyes for an instant a wild chaos of rock, beyond which lay the mysterious and impenetrable blackness of the wilderness. End of chapter 5